0: Good morning, Central Assembly. How are you this morning? Are you ready to receive? I'm ready to give. I know God's ready to give. He's always that way. So, we're continuing our series, Case for Truth. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at evidence for Jesus' physical, bodily resurrection of the dead. You guys are going to serve this morning as ladies and gentlemen of the jury. We're going to be looking at this from the perspective of presenting a case. I grew up in a family where my dad was a lawyer, and then the last 15, 20 years of his life, he was a judge. And we tried cases every night at the supper table. And so you get to share in one of those um, kind of supper uh, uh, meetings uh, along with my dad that's still, that DNA is still uh, down in there. So we're going to be presenting bits and pieces of the evidence and allow you then to decide, is this fairy tale or is this fact? Before we do that, though, I want to go back to, hearken back to a piece of a discussion that uh, Dr. Bradford and I had at the very beginning of this series. And in that uh, discussion, this one little piece that I think will help guide you through uh, this approach to the resurrection of Jesus, the foundation of our faith that's going to help you sort out why it is that we're doing what we're doing. A lot of different people in a lot of different ways have attempted to define faith from the perspective of the Bible, and, and, and it's an important thing. What is the nature of our faith? What is true, biblically defined faith? And in that discussion, I shared that this can go as far back as Moses, where at the burning bush... Um, God tells him, I'm commissioning you to go to, uh, back to Egypt, and I want you to bring my people out of slavery and into freedom. Well, Moses, thinking, you know, from the perspective of being raised in Egypt, well, there are literally hundreds of gods that your people have been surrounded by for over 400 years now. Which of these gods do I tell them is the one who's going to do this great act of deliverance? Well, God responds to Moses. He said, you tell them that I am that I am or I am who I am is the one sending you. A little bit later, he kind of doubles down on that, and he says, you tell them that I am sent you. Well, Moses is probably thinking, all right, we're almost in crash and burn mode here because that's not even clear to me. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to sort that out. But God continues. He doesn't stop there. So if you've ever wondered what I am, who I am, or I am that I am, what that means, God, it says, furthermore, said to Moses. In other words, he's going to explain this just to look, take it to the next de- level of depth, and he says, you tell them that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who is sending you and is the one that is signing off on this decree of deliverance. Well, what that means is that all of these Israelites, hundreds and thousands of them, living in captivity, are supposed to think back on Okay, well, how did God deal with Abraham? How did God deal with Isaac? How did God deal with Jacob? Faithfully. He guided them. He protected them. He provided for them. And the message is the same God who was the, that way with the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to be that way with you as well. It's appealed by God to his past performance, his track record, his portfolio, his resume, if you will. This is a God who is a proven commodity. He can be trusted to do what he says he's going to do. So if he says he's going to deliver, this is a God whose past track record says he's going to come through and deliver. Trust him in that. Well, from, uh, from Moses all the way to Malachi, in other words, spanning the entire Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, you get this kind of, he's a God of evidence. He's a God of track record. He's a God of reality. Malachi challenges the people at the very end of the Old Testament period, I want you to try me, prove me, put me to the test, God says. This is God speaking. Put me to the test and see if I don't. Now it's measurable. Now people can see what's going to happen. Now God's faithfulness is externally demonstrable. See if I do not open up the windows of heaven on you and pour a blessing out on you that you cannot even contain. It's just going to flow all over the place. It will be obvious that God has moved And it's no different in the New Testament. When we go to the New Testament, Jesus is on the scene, and he's challenging religious leaders and people who are questioning his authority. He says, look, if you don't believe me because of the words, look at what I do. Remember, that's what God said with Moses this is what I did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is just a part of the historical record. You have any question on whether I should sign off on trusting me for deliverance from Egypt? You just go back to what I've done before. Jesus is saying, if you don't trust my words, watch what I do, because you can't deny the miracles, you can't deny the exorcisms, you can't deny the power that's been poured out in your very sight, and then sign on to belief And what I said, trust what I say based on what I've done. Boy, wouldn't it be cool if the United States still rolled like that? Your word is your bond. Well, Jesus is saying, my word is my bond, and I back my word up with my actions. And all the way to the end of Jesus' ministry, this same principle, the same dynamic has, has governed, has dominated. It's not been a, a wish and a prayer. Um, this is not Bon Jovi. This is Jesus. See what I did with that? Okay, maybe not. All right. Um, Jesus is about to ascend into heaven. And in Acts chapter 1, it says that uh, after his suffering, after his death and burial, it says he appeared, he was resurrected, he appeared to them with many, give it to me, um, convincing proofs, and we're going to be seeing some of those in this message this morning. So it's about reality, it's not about once upon a time and then they all lived happily ever after in a land far, far away. This is reality, this is not make-believe. So, let's take a look at different pieces of the evidentiary pie. You're going to serve as the ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I'm going to present to you bits and pieces of the evidence, the case for truth. And you then will be in a position to make a decision, do I go deeper into this or do I jump into this for the first time on the basis of the, um, er, Mm. Yes, evidence on the basis of the evidence. So we're going to start with the earliest verbal testimony, the earliest preaching and teaching of these apostles, these evangelists, these missionaries, these just everyday you know folks, just you know, and from every walk of life who are that first gen group of believers in Jesus the Messiah everywhere they went every context they found themselves in, they were proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see it in the book of Acts, from the very earliest chapters all the way to the end. It made no difference whether they were in the land of Israel, outside the land of Israel, talking to majority Jews, talking to majority Gentiles. The message never changed. It was a consistent verbal bombardment of Jesus was crucified for our sins. He was buried, and God raised him from the dead on the third day. No backing up, no equivocation, no cutting people special deals because of the culture or the age or the language group or whatever. They were pressing in on this matter of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It marked every sermon and every speech given in the book of Acts. made no difference if it was Paul or Peter or Stephen or Philip every time these apostolic witnesses opened their mouth the, the message, the unbending message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus was proclaimed in power amazing body of Christ needs to get back to that today the centrality of this formative event in the life of faith um, the earliest written records well, we know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? and every one of them has this big long section at the end that focuses on what the Passion of the Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, Paul Ochtemeier, the world's foremost authority when he was alive, on the gospel according to Mark says that the gospel of Mark is simply a passion narrative with a long introduction because almost half of the gospel of Mark is on the last week of the life of Jesus the passion of the Christ, the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus on the third day. So the earliest record, written records are in conformity to, are affirming and confirming what we got with the earliest preaching of the, early, of the first church, the first gen. Same thing. Whether it's verbal or written, the message is the same. In the rest of the New Testament, um, the first thing that I'd like to look at is probably the longest and, and most detailed chapter uh, on these uh, post-resurrection appearances that we get from, the, from the, the, the writer Paul. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we are told this. Paul says, "...I make known to you, brothers, the gospel, the good news, the message that I preach, by which, which you received and by which you are saved." unless you believed in vain. Now, he's going to tell us exactly what he taught the Corinthians. In the first century, first-generation Christians, what is the content of that message? It's going to be the same as the verbal witness in Acts and the written records in the, uh, uh, the uh, four Gospels, and that is that of primary or, or foundational. Gr- the Greek is the word protos, The the, the essence of the message, the the, the thing that is the most important component of our faith is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. It's got to start there. If you're not right with God, everything else is a non-starter. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming throughout the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Second thing is that he was buried. And then the last, the third component is and that he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the good news. These things don't happen and we are all in trouble. In fact, Paul will say, and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We then are found to be misrepresenting God and are then false witnesses. And you of all people are of all people to be most pitied if Jesus was not bodily, physically raised from the dead. Shame on us. May God have mercy. Paul's putting, uh, uh, this is a horrible Pentecostal metaphor. He's putting all the chips on the table. It's, it, it, he's putting everything out there. He's leaving it all on the field, okay? Good sports metaphor. It all rises or falls on this. That'll tell you where... This resurrection of Jesus is in terms of importance, in terms of ranking where it is that these various beliefs we have uh, fit in. It's right there at the foundational level. It's the most important. The rest of the New Testament is not going to be any different. It makes no difference whether it's Paul writing or whether it's John writing all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, Peter writing, the focus is on Christ and Him crucified and resurrected from the dead on the third day. Over and over and over, all the way to the end of the book. All the way to the end of the book of Revelation. This is the perspective, this is the focus of that first century, first generation group of eyewitness believers in Jesus. Now, we got to stop and ask ourselves, because the question's already been raised by the middle to the left of biblical scholarship, yeah, but these guys probably just got together somewhere and got their story straight. It, they came up with, with a, a, a narrative that was basically along the lines of, well, that didn't really work out so well, so let's doctor the story. Or, you know, we're really embarrassed that we took part in this, and so we're going to do this to try to save face. It's, um, it's, it, it's like um, if fake news. <laughs> is, that what, is that what this is about? So we have to raise that question, and we have to address it. We've got to take it head on. So let's look at other aspects of the biblical evidence that goes beyond the, 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 the verbal testimony, beyond the written records, and let's look at some other pieces of the evidence. Oh, august ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Uh, the reaction that you get when a, on these TV shows when a detective goes to someone who really is a suspect, they may have committed the crime, They may be responsible for the body laying in the corner of the room and they get told, hey, I'm sorry, your your spouse has been, you know, has met their demise. You look for that visceral, that gut-level response from the person that you suspect is the originator of the crime to see how do they respond to this news. And based on that, then that you've seen enough of these detective shows, right? To know, they know, do we pursue this or do we look for other suspects? Well, these people who saw the events and then are telling the story, well, when you read the narratives, these people are anything but in collusion with one another. They're not meeting secretly and getting their story straight. They're meeting secretly in fear. They're confused. I thought I knew where this was going. And at the very end, I get thrown a curveball. They're, um, they're surprised. Can't believe this guy, because they didn't understand when Jesus had predicted his own death and resurrection, according to the Gospel of Matthew, three times. Didn't understand that. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead, they were more surprised than anybody. Surprise, confusion fear and with thomas i'm not going to believe this this is john chapter 20 i'm not going to believe this until i'm able to put my fingers in his nail nail wounds and place my hand in his side we call him doubting thomas i think he's gotten a bad rap over these 20 plus centuries i think he's i'm looking for the evidence thomas this is the if you remember back in the 1980s. This is the old lady driving through the Wendy's drive-through when drive-throughs were new, cutting-edge technology, right? And and, and she looks at her hamburger and she opens it up and she says, "Where's the beef?" Old timers, you remember this? Where's the beef? Thomas is simply saying, "Where's the beef? I, I, show me the evidence." And I'm more than happy to get on board with it. You know, he was martyred in India. Preaching this same gospel. Got an email just the other day from a student that was in an international class I was teaching online, and she said, I live in Madras, India, the same place where the Apostle Thomas was martyred, preaching this gospel, not another one, this gospel. So, is this another conspiracy theory? Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's yours to decide. Do these people act like that they're in collusion and that they've just gotten somewhere and, quote, gotten their story straight? That's not what the evidence suggests. How about another piece of the evidentiary pie? Another another piece of evidence. All of these witnesses that we hear about, start counting them up. The women who were at the tomb, by the way, who weren't believed by the apostles when they came back and told the story. We saw him and he was alive again. He's back. Uh, the, The two disciples, remember this story on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't even recognize him until the very end. Shame on them, right? No, they're just openly telling the story. We didn't understand. We didn't recognize. We didn't know. And all of a sudden, they realize the risen, the resurrected, bodily resurrected Jesus was in our midst. And how about the um, list that Paul gives in that same passage, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, of all of these people that Jesus first appeared to Peter alone. Then he appeared to the 12 all of the disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom, Paul says, are still alive. His, the insinuation is, if you don't believe what I'm writing, if you don't believe this narrative, there are plenty of eyewitnesses around still alive. You can go and check it out with them. They're still available. I dare you, is almost what Paul is saying. And then after this, he appears to this person named James. Uh, this is not the James of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. This is another James, unqualified. No, no connection with John, no connection with the father Zebedee. Just James out there by himself. Uh, if you're taking notes. Make, write that down because it's going to come back at the end of the message. This James, he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the twelve again. And then finally he appeared to Paul. You'll remember Road to Damascus, Acts 9, Acts 22, Acts 26. Okay, and so Paul receives this bodily resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and it changes his life. Completely 180s Paul's trajectory. Paul moves from Paul the persecutor to Paul the proclaimer. Because of that event on the road to Damascus, a resurrection appearance of the resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. Pretty awesome stuff. Life change. So lots of people are seeing this same stuff. Lots of people are telling the same story. So with multiple attestation, or you could also call it corroboration, where one witness affirms or confirms the witness of another. You see it on TV all the time. They're always playing this game. Separate the witnesses, depose the witnesses, put them on the witness stand, question the witnesses. If they're telling the same story, it's pretty likely that that story's real. That's what really happened. You know the game, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Then we have the evidence of persecution and martyrdom. Another piece of the evidentiary pie. You know, these people who are witnessing this event, the resurrected Jesus and then they're giving eyewitness testimony to the resurrected Jesus, well, these people were serious enough about holding to that story that they were willing to be imprisoned and, and beaten and starved and ultimately killed on behalf of their faith, whether that's Stephen in Acts 7, or the, that's that James in A.D. 62, whether it's Paul or Peter, who were both martyred in Rome in A.D. 64, these people are signing off on their testimony, and they're signing in their own blood. Now, question for you. Somebody that's going to make up a story, and they know they made it up because they're the ones who made it up, right? Do they then live their whole lives and endure this kind of hardship and then eventually, being faced with martyrdom, do they then give up and, like I would, you step back and go, hey, man, yeah, the judge, uh, the Caesar, uh, governor, time out. Um, you know what? I, I was just kidding. Yeah, I was just messing with you. I just kind of made that up. That just oh, sounded good at the time. Nobody does that. They go to the stake. They go to the, the beheading block. They go to the cross, and they're willing to die for a lie? Something they know that they made up, it doesn't make sense, does it? So then, again, back to the OJ trial, if the glove does not fit, then you must, yeah. So work with this, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. The persecution and martyrdom. Now some will say, well, yes, but there are other martyrs. You remember the 9-11 martyrs. They're completely different faith, one that we don't agree in. And yet, they were willing to give their lives. And my response to that is, that's apples and oranges, you guys. You're playing apples and oranges because these people are centuries removed. They're not eyewitnesses. They have been taught as children. They've been raised up. They've been trained. They have been programmed to believe this particular thing. These other folks are eyewitnesses. They're the ones who were there when it happened. Nobody had to tell them what they saw because they saw it themselves. Then they give testimony to it, and then they are willing to sign in their own blood by martyrdom. Two completely different things. One, centuries and centuries removed, and simply going by a story that somebody passed down and told them as opposed to these people are the origins of the story. They're the ones who saw, and they're the ones who first witnessed It's not the same, I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. Now, let's take a look outside the Bible, because we can. We got the Bible's testimony, but another piece of this evidentiary pie is the stuff that we find outside of Scripture. And we saw in a previous installation of this series, Case for Truth, that there's this first-century historian, Josephus, a Jewish man who grew up, a contemporary of the apostles, grew up in the land of Israel, but never professed faith in Jesus. Got close, but never himself became a follower of Jesus. So this is not Christian stuff, and this is outside the Bible. And, and, and Josephus says that Pilate condemned Jesus to be crucified and to die. But, but then those who were his disciples continued to be His disciples even after crucifixion, and they reported that He had appeared to them three days after His crucifixion, and that Jesus was alive. So this stuff that we're reading in the Bible is now being confirmed by an external witness, that's testifying to and corroborating this biblical witness, whether verbally or written, is testifying to the fact that, yes, the earliest followers of Jesus had this experience and they're telling this story. Pretty cool, huh? Josephus says, accordingly, he may have been. He might have been the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. We have the the material from the earliest rabbis. In the Babylonian Talmud, We went there was a man who went and he used the power of the dark side, he used dark magic to raise Jesus from the dead. Now notice that they're admitting that he was raised from the dead. They're questioning the way that he was raised from the dead. You see that? And then we have another text. And this is in a big, long block of where the rabbis are discussing Jesus of Nazareth. And they said at the end, woe to the one who makes himself alive by the name of God, by using the name of God in some kind of magical ritual, by getting control of the power of God, by being able to pronounce God's name, which is not supposed to be pronounced, but pronouncing it properly and in some way resuscitating himself. Jesus had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So again, the issue is not that it was, was he or was he not? No, th- these ancient witnesses know that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Their complaint is the means by which he was resurrected from the dead, power of God or by the power of the dark side of the force. That's their argument. Um, I want to return to this James. Remember I asked you to make a you know, special note in your Uh, in your sermon notes about this James not the brother of John not the son of Zebedee but another James now here's where we begin his narrative Uh, James was a part of Jesus' family and at one point when Jesus' notoriety had, 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 had had risen had grown and they heard about it they heard about what he had been saying heard about things that he had been doing and when his own family heard they went out to take custody of him to sequester him, get him out of circulation because they thought that he had lost his senses. The Greek is a little bit more straightforward. Can I say it like that? They thought he'd lost his marbles, thought he was crazy, thought that he was nuts. Now, who were these people? In Matthew 13, we're told that it's Mary. Evidently, Joseph is gone. He's on the other side. But his brothers... And the first one mentioned, the next oldest, is this James. James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters. And at the end of that quote, Matthew says, it's not on the slide, are they not all here? So this is really interesting. You add them all up, and Jesus was one of at least eight, at least eight siblings. He was kind of in a Duggars, Walton's Mountain kind of family. Add on dad and, and mom, and you're talking about a big family that Jesus is from. But Jesus is the firstborn. So James is one that it all falls to. It's like, okay, now I've got to finish these, you know, incompleted orders for furniture or, you know, whatever. I've got to pay the bills. I've got to take care of raising the rest of these snotty-nosed kids and stuff. And James is one of these standing at the front of the line saying he's lost it. And, if I can read between the lines, I'm the least one happy about it. James is the most offended but then this is not the end of James's story by any stretch. In the book of Galatians, Paul says that about 17 years after his cru- after his uh, conversion that he went up to Jerusalem to meet the leaders of the church and he mentions James. Usually it's James and John when they're together, but this that James, the James of James and John had been put to death by Herod already in Acts 12. He had been beheaded. So this is not that James. This is the other James, the one we just read about. James, the half-brother of Jesus, and Kepha, Aramaic, is, means little pebble or Peter, right? And John, who were reputed to be pillars, these were the columns that held up the building of the first church. These guys were the leadership of 1st AG Jerusalem, of uh, the Central Assembly Jerusalem. And so... Um, Paul goes and has a meeting with these guys, and James is at the first, at the, at the front of the list. We hear it in Acts 15 as well, when they the church gathered together to have a discussion about what do we do about these Gentiles that are pouring into the church? Do they have to be, they become Jewish first? They have to be circumcised? to keep the law of Moses and then like pre-qualify and then come into the body of Christ? Do they come in on the same status as Jewish believers in Jesus? This was the major issue on on the table. You read about it throughout the New Testament, especially the letters of Paul. Well, in the book of Acts in chapter 15, when they're gathered together, people get to speak. But the one who sums it all up and gives the final decision is none less than James. James. Brethren, listen to me, and then, okay, so it's my determination, it's my decision, it's my judgment, having heard all of the evidence, this is the direction that we're going to go. By the way, that direction affects you and me today. We're sitting here because we're downstream from that decision in Acts chapter 15. But James' story still doesn't end here. We have one of the 27 books of our New Testament canon, a list of sacred scriptures, written by this guy, James, who wrote the book of James. It's kind of like the book of Proverbs of the New Testament, sort of the godly Christian wisdom way of life. This is the way. And James is its author, not the James who's, who was beheaded. He was finished his race. This is the half-brother of Jesus. Then we have, we discussed this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about evidence outside the Bible, we have the ossuary or the bone box or the kind of mini coffin that James's bones were placed in. This comes from an event in A.D. 62 where James is martyred and this was his final resting place. How do we know? Because we have an inscription here in Hebrew, That blown up, you can see Yaakov bar Yosef, Ahui di Yeshua. The same thing given by the artist Reconstruction and it translates, James son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. This is that James that we're talking about. Well, Why was he martyred? Josephus tells us that Interesting. We don't get this in the New Testament, but we get it from a non-Christian, first-century Jewish author from the land of Israel. And he says that Ananas, we call him Ananias, he shows up in the book of Acts, convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus who was called the Christ. He accused them and then delivered them up to be stoned, exactly. That's history written in the book. This, this is confirmed outside the Bible reality. But you know, it, it gets even better because after Luke wrote the book of Acts in the early 60s, about another 60 or 70 years later, another Christian historian wrote the history of the, the, the early church up to his day. There's a whole other generation between Luke and this guy, Hegesippus, who was born in the first century. And in the early second century, he describes in greater detail than Josephus gave this martyrdom of James. He said the religious leaders said, take your stand on the temple parapet or pinnacle and so that uh, from that height you can be seen and your words will be heard by everybody. They said, O righteous one, whose word we are all obliged to accept because he had such an incredible persona. He, he, he was such an influential person. He was such a godly, reverential person that people looked to him for leadership obliged to accept the people are going astray after Jesus who was crucified. So tell us, what is meant by the door of Jesus? We will be addressing that, by the way, next week. The exclusive claims of Christianity. Is Jesus the door? Is he the only way to God? And what is meant by the door? He replied as loudly as he could, why do you question me about, and notice that he's talking about his brother. This guy probably wore Jesus' hand-me-downs. He takes over in the carpenter shop after Jesus launches his messianic ministry. And this guy is now calling Jesus, thought he was crazy according to Mark 3. Now he's come full circle. He's done a 180, just like Paul, by the way, from persecutor to proclaimer on the road to Damascus. 180, and why do you question me about that end-time Son of Man who's going to come in great glory and He's going to basically bring to a consummation, conclusion, human history? That Son of Man. I tell you, He's sitting in heaven at the right hand of, of the great power. We just sang about it. And he will come on the clouds of heaven. So they went up and they threw down the righteous one. And they said to each other, let us stone. And there it becomes very clear who this passage is talking about. James the just. James the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father. But this guy who went from he's crazy to I will give my life for him in martyrdom. Let us stone James the righteous. And they began to stone him. One of them, a fuller, took the club that he used to beat out the clothes and he brought it down on the head of the righteous one, this James the Just. And such was his martyrdom." So uh, I wrote an article on this about four years ago. You're welcome to take a look at it, go back and get it off the screen, review the video, and it goes into greater detail the reason why we are doing this entire series is to beckon people who are already committed closer and and encourage and inform their witness, commit to to a more active, more effective witness, and also to challenge those who are sitting on the fence that there is reality here and it needs to be checked out. There's reality enough here that there needs to be a serious commitment made. So, local, the the location of Jesus. Now we're going to factor in geography into the situation. And here's a picture of old Jerusalem. You can see the wall that runs around the city. You can see the temple mount right here. Here in the the shadow is the Kidron Valley. And just beyond it is the Mount of Olives, a ridge that runs north-south. Behind that is the Judean wilderness, and there's even a strip of blue there. If you can really squint... Maybe you've got, you've got a really new prescription in your glasses, but that's the Dead Sea, just about 16 miles east of Jerusalem. But within the city walls, there is a church. It's an ancient church. It goes back to the first century. It was rebuilt again in grand style in the 300s A.D. under the Emperor Constantine. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulcher or Grave. The Greek Orthodox call it the Church of the Resurrection. So you've got the both in the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and it's all taking place in the same spot, within the city walls. Over here, at the bottom of the picture, is a, uh, a garden that is called the Garden Tomb, and this is a place where Protestants like to go because there's lots of processionals and chanting and masses and, and a huge numbers of people that visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and here are resurrection, and here you can be quiet, you can be alone with your group, you can observe communion, you can offer Christian praise, worship, prayer, etc., and it's… Um, it's a neat place as well, and so uh, when you look at the, the close-ups of these locations, you can see the two domes that mark the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is the uh, Mount of Olives in the background, and uh, you can also go inside and visit. There's a monument that was constructed over top of the tomb to protect the tomb um, of, uh, of Jesus. There are six actually six complexes within the church of first century style tombs. This is just one of them. It was recently uh, very carefully studied Um, under the National Geographic Society uh, while there were renovations taking place within the church. And if you want to take a look, put this in your browser, National Geographic and Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and you're going to find all kinds of videos as well as articles on this. Absolutely fascinating. You will see with your own eyes the the researchers removing thick marble slabs off of a bench and exposing for the first time since A.D. approximately 326 the actual bench on which the body of Jesus was laid. Um, You can also... When you're in the land of Israel, you can visit the garden tomb. And there is a tomb there. It's Iron Age, not for centuries. So it's only missed by seven centuries. But the, the point is, here, you can get the ambiance. You can get the perspective. You can get that ar- kind of original context of a tomb that was in a garden uh, as opposed to inside the city. When we're there, Pastor Jim and I, um, I'm on other trips. I do my best to get groups to go to both. Go both of these locations. That way you know you couldn't have missed it, right? you got the two main locations, and you can click and drag the ambiance of the garden tomb over onto the location of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre slash Church of the Resurrection, and you get a twofer. Hey, that's win-win, right? Because whether you decide, well, I think that this is the right location or, or that's the right location, both tombs are empty. Hallelujah. More evidence, right, jury? So now comes the in- inevitable test. Uh, I get to do this because my union card says that professors get to give tests. But I just, this is a, this is a multiple guess, and you get to decide, as the jury, um, this business of the Christian faith and its centerpiece, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, bodily, physical resurrection from the dead, Is that just some sort of, based on some sort of internal, personal, subjective experience? Is that all we got? Is it based on speculation? It was kind of like um, uh, one time Elvis Presley was asked, why do you have an Islamic crescent, you have a Star of David, and you have a Tao symbol, and you've got a a, a crucifix, and you've got a Protestant cross? He said, I don't want to miss heaven on a technicality. You know, is, is this horseshoes and hand grenades, for those of you who still understand that expression? Is this kind of, you know, a wing and a prayer, hope against hope? Um, or is this like myth and legend? Is this the world of once upon a time little boys and girls? And then, at the end, they all lived happily ever after. Is, is that what this is? Is this basically kind of a rehash of the Greek and Roman rising, dying and rising God's myth that Christianity has been accused of since the 1800s? Is that what this is? Or is this verifiable, authentic, eyewitness testimony, historical reality— testimony both inside and outside the Bible, testimony from hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses is this legitimate evidence that can be introduced into court. I'll ask ask you, as the august ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you make your choice. You make your decision. It's got to be one of these four. I don't have a letter E, maybe all of the above, One eliminates the others. So uh, could I get the worship team to take their place, begin to minister to us?